Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. What we're going to do today in talking about the Kingdom of God and His righteousness and how it works is we're going to continue with our study on Exodus, and we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, which is what is listed in Exodus 20. We'll see if people really understand what Exodus 20 is all about. Because most people do not understand the Ten Commandments. I I almost never find anybody who actually gets what the Ten Commandments is all about. Now, that's, that's an arrogant thing for me to say, that all these people who study the Bible don't even get the Ten Commandments, which is such a basic part of the Bible. Why wouldn't you understand what the Ten Commandments is? (laughs) Why wouldn't you understand what other gods are? Why wouldn't you understand all these different things? I could put in all kinds of uh, 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 links to uh, different words that we find in the context of this these scriptures. And uh, everybody could see them. And... What I'm probably going to do, I'll, we'll go through the, Exodus 20. We'll go through a little bit of an explanation of a lot of these. And I may end up coming back and putting in other links. We already have lots of pages that cover cover things that are mentioned in the Ten Commandments. And, uh, you know, so that you can kind of see, you know, because we have so many articles, so that you can kind of see how this is all interconnected. Because even though we're going to tell you stuff that most people don't hear, most people don't know, like a, on a video that we just did and we, we just published it, which was an interview by an atheist of me. And it was actually, I thought it was a pretty good interview. Uh, he kind of jumped around and of course that made me jumping around because he's asking questions about stuff and he's trying to fit me into what he thinks Christianity is. He was a Christian, he was raised a certain way, he heard of certain doctrines and uh, uh, certain interpretations of the Bible and he doesn't believe those. But unfortunately he threw the whole Bible, the whole idea of a God and existence, uh, Holy Spirit, he just threw all that out because he was so disappointed in the hypocrisy of the religious Christians that taught him. And I understand that. And I know guys who are pretty reasonable guys that they became atheists when they discovered how hypocritical much of the modern religion was. I think of a couple that I know where the husband was Protestant and the and the wife was Catholic, and both their families were undermining their marriage because they both thought that their spouses should be conforming to their religion. Of course, their religion was their idol. The doctrines of their religion was their constructed image of God in doctrinal image. I used to always, I'm not a good artist, so I never did this, but I thought it would be funny to create you know, or educational even, to create a cartoon 
that showed two men in Arab outfits, you know, sitting out in the desert with little cartoon camels. And one of the camels was pulling a cart behind it. And the cart had this statue there of what looked like a golden calf. And uh, and the one guy was saying to the other that it's okay because I made it out of Bibles. And, of course, that's what the drawing shows is that you see this golden calf but it looks like it's made out of stacks of books. You know, the legs are stacks of books and everything is these books. And so he's saying that it's okay that he has this graven image that looks like a golden calf. It's not a golden calf, cause it's, but it's okay because we made it out of Bibles. And that's basically what people do is they create a graven image out of their doctrines. They create an image of Christ, an image of God, an image of what's righteous, and they create it out of their written doctrines. And they they go into the Bible and they take bits and pieces out. And that's pretty easy to do because we have so many doctrines already out there that are telling you this word means this and this word means that and this is what they were doing. You know, they were piling up stones and burning up sheep to make God happy. And the Essenes at the time of Christ didn't think that was what the Torah said. They were reading the Torah. They knew Hebrew. And they said that that idea of animal sacrifice on stone altars was a fiction and a fraud. Now, they had the Passover and they sacrificed a lamb at Passover, but they ate it. And, of course, at Passover, if you don't eat it all, then you just have to burn up whatever's left over. So, of course, uh, which we've explained when we went through that in our study of Exodus, when they were having Passover, they were to invite enough people over to their house, if they had a big enough house to have all these people in it and the lamb in it, they have to invite these people over so that they would all eat this whole lamb, all the meat of this lamb, plus the unleavened bread, plus, plus the bitter herbs, plus everything that they had on the table, had to eat it all by morning, had all be gone. Now, if you have my oldest son or a couple guys like my oldest son, that's probably an easy task to do because he can eat the meat. <laughs> He's a meat eater. Always was since he was a little kid. Uh, his his name actually means wolf, and we just happen to name him that way. But he is always he has always been a meat eater. Just we named him right. It actually means wise wolf. So we're still. We're still determining whether wise was put in there, but we have great hopes. <laughs> Krishna, if he's hearing this, he does listen to the show from time to time. I'm just kidding. But the reality is, is that they had to eat all that meat. And one night, all that food had to be eaten or anything they had left over, they had to burn up, set on fire, and then they would burn that up. So, Israelites, they weren't going to waste meat. They were going to waste food. So they had to invite enough people over to eat that whole lamb and all the food that was prepared. And what that did was force the wealthier men in a ten-family congregation to invite as many people into their house. Because they're the only ones with a house big enough. So the guy with the biggest house is going to invite everybody over to his house. And they're all going to stay in there. They have to stay in there all night. And they're going to share this meal together. And there's a message in that. Because sharing 
what you have extra is what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. Sharing with others that have the same expectation, the same ideas of righteousness as you do. So you share with them. This is what John the Baptist was saying. This is what Jesus was saying. This is what Paul is saying. This is what Peter is saying. This is what Proverbs says. You either do that to take care of the needy of your society and what we call pure religion. Or you go to men who exercise authority one over the other to take care of the needy of your society. To provide for the needy of your society. If you do that, you it will become a snare and a trap. That's what David said. That's what Paul says. It will become a snare and a trap. That's what Proverbs says. It runs towards death. It runs towards evil. It is the essence of iniquity. To look to men who exercise authority to take away from your neighbor with legal authority so that they can give to you so you can have your neighbors, what was once your neighbors, you can have it for free. That is just, you could, you could explain that to a first grader and he should get it. But modern Christians don't get it. That, for a lot of reasons, they don't know what the meaning of words are, they don't know what religion means, they don't know what fringe means, they don't know what breaches means, they don't know what leaven means, they don't know what altar means, they don't know what the Sabbath means. They have an idea. In their head about what all these things mean. But it's not really what it means. And so we need to think differently. And to tell somebody who's thought a certain way for a long time that what they think is true just ain't so. It's going to create conflict. It's going to create resistance. They're, they're not going to like to hear that. And so that's... That's where we got to go in looking at Exodus. And of course, like we've done, we finished Exodus 19 this morning. We'll actually, I already have one recording on Exodus 19 up there, which was last week's show for those of you who missed it. So you can go to preparingyou.com, look up Exodus 20 or Exodus 19. And there is an audio there. I did another more complete audio today on a two-hour broadcast and you can listen to them both. I tried to say basically the same thing, the same gospel of truth, the gospel of righteousness, and tried to say it a slightly different. You know, there'll be some overlapping, so you can start bringing the pieces of the puzzle together mentally in your mind. But all that I can impart to you over this airways is knowledge, information. That's still of the tree of knowledge. If you want to understand the kingdom, you have to learn about it through the tree of life. In order to learn about it through the tree of life, you have to sit down together with others and start doing what God has said from the beginning. Because from the beginning, God saw when he made man from the Adama, there was Adama there somehow, and he molded man from the Adama, which the Adama may have been living creatures at that time, people living at that time, products of the creation of mankind, the creation of God. But something different, he took Adam 
And he breathed into Adam, just like Jesus breathed into the apostles. When Jesus breathed into the apostles, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's basically what God was doing. Receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. This divine connection, this yod, this divine spark from God. And he received it. But did he listen to it? God gave him two trees. Tree of knowledge. Tree of life. You could, you could use the tree of knowledge. Of good and evil. It was there. It had a function. But it wasn't to be the source. It wasn't to tell you what was true and what was false. It was just a tool. You know, like I give you a hammer to pound nails. I can give you an axe to cut wood. It's a tool. But if you take that hammer and hit your brother over the head with it, it's still a tool. But you've made a serious mistake. And there will be consequences for doing that. So it's the same thing is that the tree of knowledge, the ability to have knowledge, the ability to think, the ability to understand things intellectually, is a tool. But basically, it's AI. It's what we call AI. I mentioned that this morning on this morning's program. So, when all these shows are in order in Exodus, you'll go through and you'll see how I'm tying, I'll say some little thing in one show, and then maybe the next show or two shows later, I will tie it into something that I said before. AI isn't a sentient thing. It's an intellectual thing. It's a cal- It's amazing what the AI they've already produced can do. In seconds, it can, it can write uh, essays <laughs> that make sense. Uh, complicated. It can it can paint pictures, you know, about things that it, you don't even know. I mean, it it looks creative because it accesses all kinds of knowledge, and it can create an image of reality with the paint pictures it paints, with the articles it writes. It can create that image. It's AI, but does it? Is it sentient? Is it self-aware? It can act like it's self-aware, but is it self-aware? Bigger question. Are you self-aware? Do you know where all the ideas in your mind come from? Do some of them come from the tree of knowledge? Do they come from other people who have literally hypnotized you, mesmerized you? Because of their charismatic approach and the way they speak, they're so charismatic. Moses was not charismatic and said, by speech anyway. He was slow of speech. But are the ideas in your head the product of the Holy Spirit? Are they the product of the tree of life? And so you're, you're on a journey right now to make that distinction. But how do you do that? Well, Moses is telling the people. And he's doing it in a code of metaphors and allegories. And we're giving you an insight into that. A lot of people aren't going to follow along unless they start realizing that words don't mean what you were told. And it'll be interesting when AI comes to preparing you and studies that website. 
uh, we were going to take all the pages of preparing you and we were going to put them into PDF format so that you could actually download onto your own computer the whole website with all the articles. And uh, so that was going to be a big task. A lot of dark nights and late nights turning them all into that. We already started the project and the guy who was doing some of that, I was doing some of it at one time, but now he kind of took over doing that. It was quite the project, but he would go through and read a lot of the pages and he would correct typos and that's good. So it was providing a service. He's getting a familiarity with all the sites. There's a few other things we're going to do. Ended up my grandson knew how to write a software to do the whole thing. And I thought, well, this is going to take months before I ever done it. He was in here when I came back in from taking care of some sheep. And there he was. He had written the software. It was downloading. <laughs> he says he'll still have to do some more tweaking. But the whole site in a very compact way. So the whole site with all this information could be on everybody's personal computer. He actually thinks he can write a system that will bring down all the sound files and put them in your computer. And you know, I don't know if it can fit in a tablet or not, but it wasn't that many megabytes. And, you know, with pictures and everything. So it really, when I see he's already done this, i got to work harder on making the website complete. I don't know if I can ever make it complete. We're constantly coming across new things, like in doing the Exodus thing, finding out what the word leaven was. I had an inkling of that, but I had nothing written about it. We do now. Incense. I have something started on incense. But what is incense? What's it all about? What's it a metaphor for? And so, anyway, we're putting all those together so that you begin to understand what the altars are. We have lots on that. Altars of clay and stone. What does it mean to stone people? Did Moses really take the people out of the cruelty of Pharaoh to deliver them into the hands of the cruelty of people that will stone you because you cut wood on Sunday? Do you really think that's what God is all about? If I read the Old Testament the way a lot of people do, I would think God was just an absolute vengeful, cruel, you know, killing people, killing the Egyptians, killing children. No. I, what I know of God, that's not the God. You know, that was one of the things in the atheist program. He says, somebody says, God doesn't kill children. And he says, well, what about the Passover? What about the flood? All the children died then. The fact is, the flood was coming. <laughs> God knew the flood was coming. And God revealed that to, Moses, uh, to Noah. And then told Noah what he could do to prepare for the flood. It was coming. Disasters were coming. On this planet, there had been multiple disasters. Multiple mass extinctions of animals and creatures. And plants. Mass extinction, where we have no evidence of those plants surviving after these mass extinction events. It's already built in. It's going to happen. But if you're a sentient being, in other words, you, you can eat of the tree of life. God can prepare a way that you will survive the catastrophe and be alive on the other side. But now, if you're just interested in saving yourself, that's not 
that isn't in the nature of God. The nature of God is that you want to save others. As much as you want to save yourself. You want to save yourself, sure. You, you have to love yourself. I mean, and if you love the God that created you, you have to love yourself and God. So we got those two things covered. But if you really love God, you have to have the character of God. God wants all of you to survive. He wants all of you to be saved. But you have to have the character of God. And one of the chief characters of God is that you have to be willing to give up your ability to exercise authority over other people to give them the exousia, the right to choose. The right to choose life. See, I, I believe in right to choose. <laughs> you know, like the abortion people, right to choose. The abortion people who believe in the right to choose don't really believe in the right to choose. They tell you they don't really believe in the right to choose. They write for them to choose, but they want to take away the choice of the fetus. Fetus wants to live. It, it wants to grow a heart, wants to grow hands, wants to live. That's why it's there. It it desires life, which is why sometimes when the forceps come in, it will try to get away from the forceps. It will try to get away from the acids and the salt solutions. Because it wants to live. It's built in to anything that is alive, wants to live. Unless something goes wrong, it's, it, it, that's what it will do. But if you make something go wrong, if you choose to take away its desire, it, 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 you take away its opportunity to desire life, then you don't believe in the right to choose. You believe in taking away the right to choose. You are willing to kill others for your convenience. You're a murderer. You choose to murder. Well, that's the right to choose too. But that choice is not without its consequences. Now, I don't want to put all kinds of guilt on any woman that might be listening to this that has committed an abortion because we also have the right to forgive. You want to be forgiven for what you may have done that was not righteous? Just have to forgive others. Because I'm sure you can find all kinds of people that are not righteous with you that have abused you. You just have to forgive them. It doesn't mean that they get away with being uh, unrighteous to you. It means you forgive them and you leave judgment to God. I'll tie this into our whole story of Exodus. Go back to the Israelites leaving Egypt with gold and silver and all their livestock and all their children and their grandparents and their neighbors and everybody is leaving Egypt, going out down the road, down the wadi, headed towards the Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea. And they're all going down there, walking every day, eating unleavened bread and whatever food that they could take along with them. Going down, walking all day, sleeping now and then for brief rests, and then walking again some more, just pounding the ground 
with footsteps as everybody walks down this wadi and probably brings carts and everything loaded with stuff down to the shores of the Red Sea, which at at this place of Aquaba. And there they are, down there. So what's, what's going on? Pharaoh is coming after them. And they can't get across the Red Sea. They're stuck there. Through some sort of miraculous event, they're able to walk. Dry land appears. Water is divided by dry land. Winds blow that the, the mud and silt that is washed up on this peninsula going all the way across is dried out in this Gulf of Aquaba. And they can actually walk across it. And they start walking across it. And something's keeping the Pharaoh's army from attacking them while they're doing this. They're not doing it. They get all the way across. And then the Pharaoh tries to go across. Did God kill the Pharaoh's men? We talked about this this morning. But it bears repeating. They killed themselves. Did God drown all the people of the world with a flood? They drowned. But God was telling Noah and Noah was telling the people for years and years. He's telling the people there's a flood coming. Disaster is coming. You need to prepare. They could have built ten boats. They could have built a hundred boats. You know, like the, what was the movie? 2000, uh, was it 2012? Was that the name of the movie? They built these boats. They built seven in that boat uh, deal. But I don't know that God was a part of their plan. But anyway, the reality is is that God was trying to show all these people a way out, but they could not hear God. They weren't used to listening to God. They were. They thought they were smart. They thought they were intellectual. They thought they were sentient beings, but they weren't sentient to God, to the Creator, who can give you insight outside of time. He can tell you what the future holds. Now, a lot of people want to know what the future holds, but they want to do it so that they can make a lot of money in the stock market or something. You, Noah didn't know exactly what was going to happen in the future, but he knew he had to build this boat. And he knew he had to do it a certain way. And somehow this God told him. Didn't have the name for Yahweh yet, but God told him what he had to do. But he had some sort of insight that other people don't have. The mother of Moses had some sort of insight that I need to put my son in a basket. I need to set him afloat in the Nile River. I need to have my daughter watching the basket. Uh, but something good is going to come of this. I don't know how much she knew and how much she didn't know. But that's crazy. And she probably knew it was crazy. But she also knew it was something she was going to have to do. That's why I try to live my whole life. That's why I've tried to teach my kids to do. They don't always listen, but they still have time. They have all, they're all successful in what they do do, but they don't all see everything that they need to see because this is an individual journey and I have to give them the, the, the freedom to make those choices. I have to give you the freedom to make those choices. But I am going to interrupt what you've been thinking the Bible has been telling you so that you can see 
the real truth. And the real truth is not right that you be alone because you need to learn to care about others as much as you care about yourself. This is why God instituted the family. This is why God made man and woman. Woman is a man with a womb. Man is a man. They're both men, but a woman has a womb. (laughs) People say, how do you know it's a woman? You know, uh, what is a woman? That was the program, I guess. What is a woman? It's a man with a womb. And if a man has a womb, she also probably has a different set of hormones going through her body. Not only to create the physical reality of that womb, but all the other characteristics of a woman. Now, sometimes that gets a little mixed up. But, basically, if you got a Y, you're a guy. (laughs) And if you don't, you're a gal. And that's... Now, you can have effeminate men who are still men. And you can have masculine women who are still women. And uh, somebody was showing me a picture of a woman who uh, she does, uh, I guess she teaches uh, making things out of pottery, clay and everything. And they were so impressed with this. She looks pretty young, but I guess she has older daughter or something. I didn't, I didn't meet her, but I just saw pictures. And they said that she is so fit. She's just picking up these big things of clay and she's moving them around and uh, probably wedging and all these different kinds of things. And she's very athletic. A lot of women aren't that athletic. She was. But that's, that's the difference. She's still a woman. She had children. She must have a womb. She got a woman, womb. She's a womb man. So you have these basic things, but it says that that wasn't a right that man be alone. So God made this woman also breathe life into her, made her out of the red clay, and he put them two together. And those two started producing offspring. And together they were trying to raise these offspring. Now they made some mistakes, ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil to decide for themselves what was good and evil. And that ended up, they realized they don't really have the authority to do that. I'm naked when it comes to that power. I should have only eaten of the tree of life. But to look at the tree of life, to eat of the tree of life, you have to see yourself. But the key thing here that I wanted to point out is it's not right that man be alone because man has to care for the woman. The woman has to care for the man. And they both have to work together to care for the child. So family is part of the keys to the kingdom. It alters you to have a family. It alters you to have children. But you have to go with the flow, with the mim, with the yad mim of that flow, with the tav yad mim of that flow. For those of you who've listened a lot, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have to go with that. The world order who wants to control you and enslave you and bind you and even destroy you They have to destroy the family. They have to destroy care. Because your family has to care about the next family as much as it cares about its own. That care is where the power of God will come from. Through you. The power of His love will come through you. Because that love requires sacrifice. Sometimes, you know, to be a good parent, you have to sacrifice your kids' approval. You have to sacrifice your kids' praise. 
You have to sacrifice your kids' adoration of you so that they think you're a dummy and they call you a dummy and they call you, you know, bad names or whatever because you had to stand your ground for what's right. But you have to be willing to let that approval go. You don't have children to comfort you. They should comfort you by doing what is right. (laughs) But that's not... You have your children... Because you have to care about them. And if they don't learn to care about you and care about others, they will destroy their life. They will go into tyranny. And the tyrants of the world know we have to destroy the family. And we see that happening all the time. So I've laid a lot of groundwork here for Exodus 20. Let's just go ahead and start reading it. We're at the half hour mark or a little bit beyond. So uh, we'll take a look and see what Exodus 20 actually says. It begins with verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God. I mentioned that this morning when we just glanced at this. I am yad Hey vah the existing one, Yahweh, all the same. I am the Yahweh, the existing one, the unmoved mover, the original... God of creation. I am that existing one, thy God. So he's talking to the Israelite people and saying, I'm your God. And of course that was the atheist guy would say, why is your God better than other people's God? Well, I can unpack that. (laughs) But first we have to know what the meaning of God is. And when I try to share it with him, he goes like, I've never heard any of this before. (laughs) Yeah. I understand, but it's not a secret. It's in the definition. You can look it up in any concordance. The word God, Elohim, means ruling judge. It's the one who has the right to decide what is good and evil for you. It's an office. It's not an entity. An entity may occupy that office. It could be the entity of Yahweh. Occupying that office for you. Or it could be the entity of the Pope. Occupying that office. Or Billy Graham. Or George Bush. Or Nimrod. Or Cain. It could be all kinds of people occupying that. Or Pharaoh. Or Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar will decide what is good and evil for us. Or it could be Yahweh, the existing one, the one that is the unmoved mover, the one that actually is typed, tapped into the original source of creation and understands the singularity of creation. Now, I could call him Yahweh, I can call him Jehovah, I can call him all kinds of things, but whether or not I'm actually listening to that existing force in the universe, you're only going to know by... You know, finitely you will know by what I do, what I say. But you really probably, I could even fool you there if I really was clever at fooling people. You, But you know if I'm not doing and saying what God would actually say, then you know that I'm full of it. (laughs) I'm not true. But you will only know that if you're listening to the existing one. 
and you're making the existing one your God. And Moses is going to tell you some of the guideposts that you can look for yourself as well as look for in the life of other people to find out whether or not you're on the path to know the Lord. And if you're not, if you're stepping outside of these guideposts, you're probably not listening to Yahweh. You're probably not listening to the Creator, this creative force, this singularity, that this unmoved mover that moves through all things, but is not a thing itself because it's from another realm of existence. So he says, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So that's a big deal. Coming out of the house of bondage. So if we go back to looking at Exodus in the Hebrew. For some reason I'm led to go back to looking at Exodus in the Hebrew. And looking what it says. Brought you out of the house of bondage. Just as I expected. (laughs) What is the word brought you out of the house of bondage? Something told me. That word just jumped off the pages if you highlighted it for me. So I, I went to take a look at it. And, and the word there, you can look it up in your concordance 3318 in the Hebrew, which is often 03318. But it's Yatza, which is Yad, Tzedek, Elf, Yatza. And so, what is the deal? What is that word? Zedek is the word for righteousness. Yod is the divine spark. And Elif is the letters that is an image of the divine spark. I, I've talked about it before. If you were to paint a picture to represent the Elif, you would paint a picture of God on one side, man on the other side, their fingers reaching out towards each other to touch. And where they touch, that's the divine spark. And that is a symbol. Elif is a symbol of that relationship of God and man. Which you only get through the tree of life. You don't get it through the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge is what I just described to you, what the Elif is representing. Tzedek is righteousness. And Yad, so you're going from the Yad, the divine spark, through righteousness to create the relationship of God. So that, to go or come out, that's what they translate into brought forth. You know, and it first appears in Genesis 1.12 where God brings forth the grass. It's that divine spark brings forth the grass. With the grass we get to have cows. With the cows we get to have milk. With the the grass and the other plants we get to have honey and bees. And you know it's bringing forth this life force through the yod, zedek, elif. But what word is actually in the text that we see? Where it says that he brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. Well, the word that he actually has there is hey, vav, ayan, elef, tov, yad. The last letter is kuf. So that's a, that's a whole lot of letters in there. And, 
And what was the original letters of this word, yata? It, it was, it included the zedek, yad zedek, elif. But when we look at the word that actually appears in the text, I don't, oh no, there is a zedek. Did I say it wrong? You know, I think I said aon. I gotta look closer at these Hebrew letters. Because <laughs> uh, I don't have it written in front of me, but hey, vav, Tzedek, Elif, Tov, Yad, Kuf. So that he brought you out. He actually got you kicked out. But he brought you forth. Just like he brought the grass forth. But more. Because in this we have the additional letter of faith. Those Israelites. Not just the house of Jacob. But the Israelites. Remember I talked about that this morning. Everybody in the house of Jacob is in the house of Jacob. And everybody who is an Israelite is an Israelite. But everybody in the house of Jacob is not an Israelite. Because some of the people in the house of Jacob are not contending with the Lord. They're not really seeking the Lord. They're not contending with the error in themselves. They're going to be selfish. And we're going to see them popping up in Exodus as we go. So... You know, and you don't have to learn Hebrew. You have to learn to eat of the tree of life. In order to eat of the tree of life, you have to be able to approach the tree of life. So you have to be able to get close to the tree of life. And there's a lot of light coming from the tree of life because there's a cherub, angel, something or other at the tree of life with this fiery sword that is a beacon. And as you get closer to it, you will see it, but you also see yourself. You will see that you haven't been quite the nice person that you should have been. <laughs> but that's okay. Because all can be forgiven. And of course, the way you get forgiven is you forgive others. I know a lot of people that have tried to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and they get, they just can't stand this guy or they just can't stand that guy or this guy they can't tolerate or whatever it is. They have to have more forgiveness. They have to sit down with people and forgive them that... Because by the grace of God, you're just as much a jerk as they are. Maybe in some cases you're more of a jerk. I don't know. You you figured that out. And the more you go towards the light to try to sit down in the tens, hundreds and thousands, fifties, hundreds and thousands to take care of one another, to become the social welfare of righteousness, living by faith, hope and charity, the more you try to do that, seek to do that, willing to suffer the difficulties of doing that, and you do it, the more you will draw near the tree of life. The more you will draw near the Lord. The more you will manifest the Corbin of Christ. So that's absolutely essential if you want to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is what we're told to do. So, he took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and he did it the same way that he destroyed the Pharaoh. He laid out things that were happening. He told some people what was happening, and some people reacted one way, some people reacted the other. We find people in Egypt that are actually more Israelites than some of the house of Jacob. 
And they actually leave Egypt with Moses because they see the truth of what Moses is trying to teach them. I know people have read the Bible and read the Bible and preached the Bible and all this stuff. They don't see the truth of what Moses was trying to say. But if you start putting together all these pieces of the puzzle that we're laying out, you will have a chance to see that too. Verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's the Lord thy God, ruling judge. You're not to have any other gods before him. How do other gods get before him? How do other men get to be ruling judges before the God of creation? Well, there's lots of ways. And that's why I wrote the book, Covenants of the Gods. Almost all of them involve covenants. They involve contracts. They involve agreements. They involve application. But they involve unrighteous applications. The existing one is righteous. Once you live by faith, hope, and charity, not force, fear, and fealty. If the men you serve operate by force, fear, and fealty, you've got the wrong gods. <laughs> you've got the wrong ruling judges. They will actually say that it is absolutely okay to murder the baby in your womb. That's, they will say that that's actually moral. When it comes to the, they will interpret the law that says that that's a good thing. That you have every right to murder the baby in your room. God doesn't say that. We actually touched on that this morning, uh, where it actually says that. But you'll just have to go listen to that recording and it will eventually be up under the Exodus 19. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So, a lot of people take this. You can't make anything that looks like a fish. You can't make anything that looks like a golden calf. You can't make anything that looks like a man. Uh, You know, a statue. A graven image. Something made by you, something created by you. They, they're thinking carving out of wood, carving out of stone, making a gold or brass mold or whatever. But really, your doctrines, if they're made by you, that's a graven image. If, you know, it tells you in the New Testament that covetous practices are idolatry. To covet your neighbor's goods through these institutions that take away from your neighbor so that you can have stuff for free that that are run by men who exercise authority one over the other. Like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. Call themselves benefactors. But they only give you what they take away from others. Which is definitely covetous practice. That's idolatry. And the institution that you created there, that's the graven image. And when we go on to verse 5, it says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Hate me? 
Hate is just the absence of love. So when he says, hate me, he's actually saying, don't love me. To them that don't love me. And if we go to uh, verse 5, and, you know, something just told me, let's go to verse (laughs) 5. So we're going to verse 5. And we look up the word, hate me. Those that hate me. Which actually comes from a single word. You know, it's a single word. It's 8130 in your concordance. To hate, be hateful, to hate, of man, of God, etc. It goes on and explains all this. And if you, if you look up the word, you'll actually see the, the letters shin, nun, elif. And there's a meaning to those. And we have all those at Preparing You. You can look up the word Hebrew and it will go through, you know, the basic meaning of these words. But when you put them together, they have to fit together in such a way to create a meaning of something. Like I say, with all Hebrew words, there will be a physical meaning of that word. You know, something that physically is represented by that word or that word represents. And something more abstract. Hate is an abstraction. It's something. Really what it is, is the absence of love. So, but the words that we see there has a lamad at the beginning and a yad at the end. So lamad has to do with your hand. Yad has to do with this divine spark where your hand is coming before the divine spark, which is at the end. And so it's giving you a a suggestion and then, but there's other words in this like fourth generation or fourth and third generation to the, to the sons. There's actually places where it talks about to seven generations. But it's, it's part of this, there's a genetic memory that what you are will affect what your children are. To epigenetics, etc., as well as gen- epigenetics turns on your genetics. So, if you live a certain life, that will be passed down, visited upon your children, and they may have to learn to overcome what you failed to overcome. And this is a part of, you know, why the Israelites had to spend an extra forty years in the desert because they had to. They had to teach to the next generation the ways of the kingdom. And a lot of people are unable to do that. Unable to follow that way. And I'm sure a lot of Israelites fell away and went other places. But it tells us, that it goes on to tell us, so you're not to make those images. But it also tells you in verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. So the key thing that I'm trying to point out here is that when you create these other gods where you have to bow down and serve them, because see, that's what was going on in Egypt. 20% of your labor was service to the Pharaoh and the government of the Pharaoh. That when you were working, you know, when you got up in the morning, if you worked 10 hours that day, 
the first two hours belonged to the pharaoh. And of course, through crafts of state, they expanded that. It still said 20% or one-fifth. But they calculated what you owed the pharaoh based on the number of people in your family. So now, if you were the working man, you were if you had more children, you were going to owe more to the pharaoh. Because, of course, if there was a famine or something, he's going to have to supply your whole family with grain. So they increased your burden as you had more children. If you had male children, the burden was even greater because men could do more work, more dangerous work, more heavy lifting than the women. So this is why they didn't want to have male children anymore. And why Averis shows more women, more young females than males. And there are actually ways, things you can eat, which will, you know, change whether or not you're likely to have a male or likely to have a female child. I've talked about some of those things. I don't want people to start doing that. Uh, let God and the Holy Spirit guide you. So, in verse 6 we see, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So, those third and fourth generations, if they don't follow the ways of their father, they alter the ways that they had gone before, they can receive mercy. And this, of course, is what Jesus is teaching you, that you you have to, you know, uh, this is one of the things Joseph did. Remember, Joseph was sold into bondage, but ended up in this high place. Everything worked out for Joseph. Hard time, but life's hard all the time. But eventually, he got all this position of power and glory and and uh, everything, and he was able to save his family. And he saved his family because he forgave his brothers. And he realized he needed to forgive his brothers. And because he forgave his brothers, he ended up in this position of great wealth and power and authority. And that that's kind of the way it works, although I don't want to preach a prosperity gospel. You have to really care about others and he cared about his brothers and he was glad to save his brothers. But when Jacob died, they feared that he would come after them for vengeance. They thought that he couldn't really have forgiven us for selling them into slavery. He's just saying that because he wants dad to think highly of him, which shows that they hadn't learned all their lesson yet. Because they were jealous of their dad's love for Joseph. But when they came and they feared, are you going to kill us now that Jacob is dead? You know, kind of thing. He wept. Because he realized they still don't understand love. They still don't understand forgiveness. And until they do, they're not going to be able to approach the tree of life. They're going to continue to eat of the tree of knowledge. And he was sad. To know that they were going to do that. If you're eating the tree of knowledge, you're not going to understand the Ten Commandments. So even though I explain them to you, you're going to make up all kinds of excuses why that I'm wrong. And you can do that. So he shows mercy unto the thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And yeah, I have a link in there already in the one page. 
Keep My Commandments. I have an article on that. And I can go back and expound on these articles, and I do every day. I work ridiculous time on this. and But I'm trying to organize everything so I can even work more time on it, and less time on all the other things. But it would be, my job would be a lot easier if you all sat down in the tens, hundreds of thousands. <laughs> Moses' job was very hard because even when he got them all the way to Mount Sinai, they were still coming to him. Well, what about this? What about that? I mean, we get contacted all the time by people whose lives are a total mess. They're sociopaths running their lives and destroying the lives of their children. And I'm not going to say that my family is entirely immune to this. But, you know, it is what God has given me. And maybe I will learn things from when my children don't always learn the lessons that they should learn. So that they realize that love doesn't come from other people. Love only comes from God. Inspiration doesn't really come from other people. Some people say some of the things I say is inspiring. No, it's not. If if I'm inspiring, it's not going to do you any good. I talk about the God that can inspire you. And maybe, and this is what I said the other day, is that people recognize something I say, knowing I knew that was true. The inspiration has to come from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from the outside in. I'm on the outside. The Holy Spirit needs to be on the inside. You need to make a place for the Holy Spirit in you. And this is what I'm showing you. The guideposts are the path you have to walk in order to make that place in you, a place in you for the Holy Spirit. So you have to keep the commandments. But in order to keep the commandments, you've got to know what the commandments are. Number seven, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord, thy God, Yahweh, thy ruling judge, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So you say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jehovah. I believe in Jehovah. I believe in Yahweh. I believe in the existing one, whatever you want to call him. But you still want to work iniquity then, you know, you still want to create institutions that you will bow down and serve and that will make you safe. This is what the Israelites are going to be doing here in a chapter or two away. They're going to be creating an institution to to guarantee their safety. And they're going to serve that institution. They're going to put their gold into that institution, which represents their labor. And they're going to rise up and play And serve that institution. No. You don't want to do that. If you're doing that. Then claiming that you're going to do everything that the Lord says. Which we saw in the previous chapter. They're all saying we're going to do what you say. But you're lying. You're taking the name of the Lord in vain. And Christians do this all the time. They call themselves Christians. But they don't do what Jesus said. They're taking the name of the Lord in vain. You're not going to be guiltless for doing that. But good news is you can still repent. You can still be forgiven. You just have to forgive others, which is why it's not good that you be alone. It's not good that you're not in a congregation of nine other families. Even if it's a a congregation simply by phone. 
You should be searching out ways in which you can be of service to these other people. So then he goes into verse 8 and he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, Thou shalt, uh, thou nor thy sons, nor thy daughters, thy manservants, nor thy maidservants, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger, that it is within thy gates. Now, what does it mean to be within that gate? You mean they came to visit and they're staying in the Motel 6 down the road? So they're in your town? So they're in your gates? No, they're talking about people that have joined your system. Everybody needs to keep the Sabbath. But how do you keep the Sabbath? Is it just resting on the seventh day? Does that actually keep the seventh day? Or is it six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work so that you can have a seventh day of rest? If you're borrowing against the future, you're promising to work tomorrow after the Sabbath because you're now entering into a covenant with somebody who's going to have authority over your labor, over what you produce, because you didn't work first. You borrowed against the future. Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath is about debt. And staying out of debt. And not creating an obligation that goes beyond the seventh day. So you now have to work in the next week to pay for the rest you took in this week. Now a lot of people are going to just, no, that's not what it says. It is what it says. And you need to see that. Because if you're in debt, if your whole nation that you're a member of is in debt so that you're a collateral for that debt, you have not been keeping the Sabbath. You can rest on that seventh day. But you haven't kept the Sabbath holy. Because on that seventh day while you're resting, you owe somebody days of labor to come. So you haven't been keeping the Sabbath. So for the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. I just talked about a word that is found there in that seventh day this morning when we were doing Exodus 19. So the second recording... On Exodus 19, we'll tell you what that word is, but we're going to move on. Verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Honor thy father and thy mother. Did you know that that word honor is the same word for fatten? They're actually saying fatten 
thy father and thy mother. So does that mean you got to buy them an extra dozen donuts every week and and see to it that they get overweight? <laughs> no, it's not about getting your parents overweight. It's about taking care of your parents, honoring your parents, respecting your parents, taking care of your parents. But if you've turned that responsibility of honoring your father and mother over to an institution that you have created for yourselves, then we've just brought in the graven images into the way in which you take care of your parents. You have an institution that will take care of your parents. You don't do it. As a matter of fact, you have to do no more ought for your parents. Your parents are collecting their social security and you don't have to take care of them. The temple will take care of them. And see, that's why Jesus said the Corbin of the Pharisees, which was a system just like what I explained, was making the word of God in that effect, because nobody was getting closer to God, drawing near God, which Corbin comes from the word that means draw near, but it also is the word for free will sacrifice. You have to take care of not only your parents, which you don't have to do it through the temple. You can do that. But you also have to care about your neighbor's parents as much as you care about your own. So you have to be in a network that is going to take care of the widows and orphans when, you know, the father dies or even the father's still alive, but the mother dies and nobody's there to take care of the father. Because maybe the kids have all died too. So you have to take care of those other fathers and the mother that are within your gates. Within your system. Within the institution of God. And you have to do it with faith, open charity. Not with force, fear, and fealty. Because that runs towards death. That's the works of iniquity. Because it's based on what we're going to see here in a couple more verses. Then, of course, we got 13. Pretty easy. You think it would be pretty easy, although some people have trouble with it. Thou shalt not kill. That means murder. To take away the life of another that you don't have a right to. That's, you know, that's killing. To take away the life of another. When we look in chapter 21, which is coming up, we're going to see that an ox... Kill somebody else's ox. Two oxes fighting. Two two bulls fighting. And one of them dies. They are to take the value of the one that lives and sell it or provide funds that are the equivalent of it and share with each other. If, if there are two different bulls fight with each other and one of them dies, you have to share the loss by selling one of your bulls or coming up with the cash some other way. But, if you knew your bull was a bull killer, you knew it pushed on purpose, and it was dangerous, and you kept it anyway, then you may be responsible for the entire cost of the other guy's bull. If he kills a person... You can be held responsible as if you committed murder. It's not, not 
just negligent homicide. It's not just accidental death. It's, well, it is kind of negligent homicide, but it, it starts moving over into premeditated. Even though you didn't desire your bull to kill anybody, you knew it was a possibility and you didn't do anything about it. All these descriptions, we're going to show you when we go through that in 21. All these descriptions are the foundation of law in the world today for many countries. You just have to take it out of the context of the bulls. Like, uh, you know, a goat is not necessarily a goat. It's a symbol of something. I mean, if you have a bull that pushes and attacks people and you keep it and it kills somebody, you're going to be held responsible. If you have a pit bull that attacks people and you don't keep it under control or you, you know, it lets out of the yard or lets it out of your kennel or, or you wouldn't put it down even though it's already attacked several people, you could be held liable for murder. Not only will the dog be put down, you could go to jail. It's based on these laws and principles that Moses is explaining. So, yeah, thou shalt not kill other people. Taking away the life of others that doesn't belong to you. You don't have the right. No matter what. You're not supposed to do that. No, in, chapter, uh, in verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, everybody thinks I'm talking sexual adultery. They think this is what it means. 90%, not 90%, the majority of times that you see the word adultery in the Bible, they're talking about national adultery. Fornication, it means going to this idolatrous systems to get benefits, as well as having a system in your own Christian church that takes care of the needies, but you also go to the public religion of the world to get benefits too. That's adultery as well. That's the national adultery. That's fornication. That's what fornication often means in the Bible. To go to these other temples that don't operate by faith, hope, and charity, but operate by force. You can't do both. That's adultery. It's also adultery to eat nothing but junk food into your body. Because you're adulterating your body. And of course, doing so begins to infringe on thou shalt not kill. Because not killing also means not committing suicide. And if you eat certain foods over and over again, you're literally committing suicide. You know, I mean certain foods that are really bad for you. You know they're bad for you and you keep eating them anyway. That's literally adulterating the body, the life that God has given you. What you read can be adultery. What you watch can be adultery because it's adulterating your mind. It's altering the way you think. It's putting poisons in you. So you, you're not to be doing it. Now remember, these are not laws. There's no penalty listed after here as to what happens if you do these things. But what they're telling you, if you're going outside of these guideposts, then you're getting farther and farther away from the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, 15, thou shalt not steal. Now, in early America, uh, well, west, out west, if you stole a man's horse, that was a hanging offense. They might hang you from a tree if you stole a horse. 
Now, I know part of the reason that was instituted was because of the fact that there were a lot of horse thieves out there and they raised the execution rate of horse thieves so that the penalty would be so great it would deter the crime of horse thief. But the reality is stealing a man's horse could cause his death because the horse was so important, especially when you're out on the prairies and the plains, that without that horse, you could die. You could literally die. So, I mean, if you think about somebody who had very little food, and that food had to last them for another two months and until the spring came and they could plant or go hunting or whatever, and you came in and stole that food. Have you not murdered that individual? Because you took the food that would have kept him alive for the next couple of months and now he's going to starve to death or get so weak that he will die. So your stealing actually is like overlapping with thou shalt not kill. But what it is, is you're stealing the blood, the sweat, the toil of your neighbor. You're taking away something that he produced. If it took him Five months to produce this food and you took it all away? You stole five months of his labor. You you took it. You literally went in and took it. So, that's what stealing is. You could steal a man's reputation. You, you could lie about him. But, of course, that brings us to the next verse, which is verse 16. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You know, spreading gossip, spreading false information, saying your neighbor is bad or your neighbor is unreliable, and you don't really have any knowledge of that. So you're 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 just making it up. That's bearing false witness, but that can be like stealing. It can also cause of somebody to die. It can have number of different effects. So these are guideposts, but they are they're just on the left and the right hand side of the way. But now we come to probably one of the more important ones, and it's way at the end, but it's it's one of the longer ones. It says Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So, you know, they actually break this down into two different commandments or or guideposts. But you could also break it up into dozens of guideposts. But basically, thou shalt not desire to take away from thy neighbor Anything that is in his house, that is a part of his family, his children. You don't want to draft his sons and daughters. That would be coveting your neighbor's goods. Of course, you get to do that if your neighbor is so stupid as to desire to have a king like we see in First Samuel 8. Because they say that, you know, if you desire to have a king, a commander-in-chief, he's going to take and take and take and take and take and one of the things he's going to take is he's going to take your sons to run before his chariots. 
Because you have created an institution that allows coveting. Now, there wasn't drafting early in America, but then later on it came along. Uh, it, it was somewhat illegally practiced in the, the Civil War. But then it became more and more that you could draft. I mean, David considered drafting. The people wanted to make a list of the young men so that he would have a draft. But he broke off on that idea. He decided that idea was bad. Today, people decide it's good. But, of course, the Constitution of the United States violates four of the five basic precepts of a Constitution spelled out in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 17.16, I think it is. It violates four of the five clear statements that you were to have in your constitution. They violate it. So anyway, now we're going into verse 18. We've already gone over an hour or so, but we'll get through this because I can go for three hours. I don't know if I personally can, but we have that time set aside. This idea of coveting your neighbor's house or your his goods or anything that his neighbor. There's actually, uh, there's a guy named Russo had a conversation with uh, one of the Rockefellers. And the Rockefeller, this is supposed to, I remember it from years ago. For some reason, I saw a picture of Russo recently and it brings it to mind. So I'm sharing it with you when God gives me these little bring it to mind things. That Rockefeller was saying that they had to get the woman in the workforce. Uh, to sign up. See, in the bondage of Egypt, it was the men who owed their labor. 20% of their labor. The men of the family owed 20% of their labor to Pharaoh at the beginning under Joseph. But then eventually the women became a part of this and then they actually calculated it up based on the number of uh, people in your family. And that women were easier to manage, and I guess they might have been more pleasing than the Egyptian women, but they made it so you can have as many female children as you wanted, but if you have male children, it was going to cost you. And this is why they started actually aborting children. And because uh, it says they were casting out their brephos, which is literally fetuses. Now, People can say, well, ah, that could be just their young children. Well, then it's infanticide. But they were doing it because of this economic pressure. Because they were in bondage. And when we discuss slavery and some of the following, you know, like in, in chapter 21, we're going to discuss slavery. That is one of the things that is so difficult for people to understand. And in the book Covenants of Gods, I point out, there was almost never any slavery in Egypt. Slavery was never popular in Egypt. But, and, and when you first read that, you would think, well, then why were all the Israelites slaves in Egypt? Because they're using two different words there. If you go on and continue to read this, uh, this historian who's saying that slavery was never prominent in Egypt, it was not prominent in Egypt because of their extensive system of corvi. Which meant that every citizen of Egypt, except for the priest class, but every other citizen of Egypt were in bondage. 20% of their labor belonged to the government. 
that's bondage. That is slavery. It's not the slavery where you go out and capture somebody and make them a slave. It's not the slavery where you go out and defeat a country and all the people that are defeated are sold into bondage, which we see with the invasion of Sodom and the capturing of of uh, the nephew of Abraham, Lot. That he was being dragged off as a slave. They conquered it. They took all the gold and silver they could get. They took all the possessions they could carry. They took all the flocks they could get their hands on. And they took all the people that they thought would make good slaves. And they started taking them back to their homeland. They went out and captured them. This is common. They would do this. And they'd make them. Indians were doing this. People always think that when the Indians were here by themselves, it was all utopia. Aztecs had all kinds of slaves, including a Corby system of statutory slavery. They had other slaves as well. They had people that were very subject and, and their life could be taken away by people in certain areas of authority. They could just be killed right on the spot. Japan had that. The samurai were supposed to protect the emperor. But if you looked at a samurai cross-eyed there for different periods of time in their history, that samurai could just lop your head off with impunity. Because he said, well, he was threatening me. He looked at me with threatening eyes. I was with his angry eyes, to quote Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> and this is, this is history all over the place. Africa had this all over. The Zulus had it. Zulus would kill anybody at the drop of a hat. Even the Watusis could be absolutely ruthless. They had certain codes amongst them, but at different times in their history, they were absolutely ruthless. And of course, there were a lot of other tribes that would flat out eat you if you weren't a part of their tribe. Moses is going to be creating a nation in a whole world that operates that way. It wasn't going to outlaw slavery entirely because there's actual functioning need for a form of servitude for some people. They need that. and But he's going to put limits on it. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. So, but this idea of coveting your neighbor's goods, coveting your neighbor's labor, coveting anything that is your neighbor's, Absolutely a violation. So if you have any institution in your nation, any anywhere in your nation you have created an institution that forces your neighbor to take from his house, take from his property, take from the things that he produced, and give to your government to provide you with anything, literally for free, that is a covetous practice. And there's all kinds in the Bible that show that you and your nation are not within the guidelines that Yahweh is passing down to Moses and Moses is passing down to us. And if Christ is the Son of God, if Christ is God, as as many doctrines state, then you're going against God if you have instituted such systems in your nation. Your nation is not a nation of God. It's outside of the guidelines of Yahweh. Because it has engaged in covetous practice of taking away from its neighbor. If it is legalized that you can murder 
your unborn child, or even in some cases, you can commit infanticide by, you know, the child is born already. We've had doctors explaining, yeah, this is okay. The child is born, but nobody will pick the child up. No one will take care of the child. The child will be let to die. And, of course, now in Canada and a lot of other countries, they they not only have infanticide, killing of children, they have euthanasia, where they are killing your parents. I mean, they have to take care of your parents. They're the ones who are supposed to honor your parents, fatten your parents, because you don't do that anymore. You've turned that over to the government with your systems of Corbin that you call Social Security or Social Insurance. You've done all that. This is changing the way you think. It is changing your mind. It is changing the nature of society. And according to Polybius, it is degenerating society until you have perfect savages. Where people will bash people's brains in, in the streets, open in the public, break into their store, steal everything, take everything, even the stuff they don't need. It's perfectly okay. And you will have a government that protects the thief and punishes the laborer, the one who produced the, you know, the, the things that are of value in the store. You think that would never happen? It is already happening in America, all over America. You can be outraged about it, but you can't do anything about it. Because you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. If you were sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, what would you do about it? What would you need to do? Would you send your men of war out to fight? You know, the the the, the gods of that government and the, the servants of that government? You wouldn't need to. Any more than the Israelites needed to go out and fight the chariots of the Pharaoh. But you have to really be staying within the parameters. You have to really love God. In order to love God, you have to love one another. You have to care for one another. If you start doing that, the utility of love, I talked about this morning and talked about many times, that power of God, which can pass through you like an arrow. Hopefully it won't pass through you, but it will pass through your enemy like an arrow. Oh, I could tell you stories. Uh, but I won't do it. I'm, I'm, I have to keep that story to myself. I, I, I flashed on it for a second, but it, it, it makes things clear. It will literally, that power of God will be like not just stones upon the head of your enemy, but hot stones upon the head of your enemy. And it will pass through them like arrows. It will instill fear in them. They will bow down before that love. But you can't fake that love. You can't even make it up. You can't even even imagine it. Because it only comes from the tree of life. Now I'm getting a little bit into the metaphysical part of this and everything. I'm making reference to it. But if you continue within these parameters that they're setting down here. And if you continue in the parameters of the way of Jesus Christ and start doing what Jesus Christ was doing. And it's not that Moses didn't say some of these same things, but when we read it in the Greek and we read it in even the modern translations, we know we're not to covet our neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. Because Jesus says it's not to be that way with us. 
But we know that most churches out there, most ministers out there, say, no, that's perfectly okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through governments. When actually, Jesus says it's not okay. So you know that preacher is not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We don't have to condemn him. He condemns himself. We can pray for him and hope he gets it. You can send him a copy of this audio. So that he realizes that he's not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Because he is the blind leading the blind. He is saying it is okay to covet your neighbor's goods. It's not okay. Not okay with Yahweh. It's not okay with Yahweh who should be thy God. It's not okay with Jesus. It wasn't okay with Paul. It wasn't okay with John the Baptist. It wasn't okay with the author of Proverbs. It wasn't okay with the author of Psalms. In fact, David said what should have been for your welfare was a snare and a trap. Paul agrees with him and recites the same basic message that we see uh, David say. And of course, Peter says that through such covetous practices is desiring benefits from men who exercise authority, which Jesus said you were not to be like, would turn you into merchandise, human resources, where a portion of your labor would belong to that institution. People say income tax is not legal. It's never been passed in the law. We don't find it in the statutes. Well, actually, you can find it in the statutes with corporations. But, yeah, it is statutory. There's no way that the Congress can pass a law that says suddenly everybody's labor belongs to the government. Where would they get the authority to do that? They have no reason or power to do that. But they can create an institution that you would go and sign up and say, if you give me these benefits, I will give you 20% of my labor or whatever you say. You know, Joseph made a ceiling limit. It could only be 20% of your labor. And, of course, they got around that a little bit. But the institution that was set up by your government, I haven't seen a country yet. Well, Egypt still had that rule, like I said, back when Mubarak was president. I haven't looked it up since Mubarak was president. I explained that a little bit. Uh, in previous recordings. I might even have it on some of the uh, videos. But you're back in the bondage. It, and it says in the New Testament, you would entangle yourself again in the yoke of bondage. You would even curse your children through the, your covetous practices. And your covetous practices is desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor through the power of the gods of the institutions you have created for yourself. And of course, God says, go and cry unto the gods that you have accepted for yourself. Not those gods are the men who are the exercising authorities that rule one over the other. Because they are the ruling judges of those institutions. And you have made covenants with them to get stuff that was taken away from your neighbor or would be taken away from your neighbor in the future because most of what they give out now is the result of borrowing against the future, which is a violation of the Sabbath. <laughs> so, I mean, is there any of these parameters you're not outside of? <laughs> 
Any of these guideposts you have not gone around, yet you say you're a Christian, you say you're an Orthodox Jew, or say you're a Jew, or even say that you're a Muslim. They have the Ten Commandments. They accept Moses as a prophet. Uh, but, you know, in some countries, and now there's all kinds of Muslims out there. A lot of people are Muslim because their parents were Muslim and their parents were, became Muslim because the Muslims came through and said, become a Muslim or we'll kill you. And so they became, and then generation after generation, they've stayed Muslim. But even amongst the Muslims, even amongst the Jews, even amongst some of the Orthodox Jews, because that's a wide variety of people and wide variety of beliefs, because some Orthodox Jews think other Orthodox Jews don't know what they're doing. <laughs> but the reality is, amongst all these people, I don't care what label you put on them, you may find people that in their hearts, there is a place for God. And they may not be all that far from the kingdom. And many of the things they do, because it's what they were taught. It's what was told to them is Okay. And I'm evidently given the job to come to you and tell you, no, it's not. It's not okay. It's not true. And I understand you're going to want some proof. Because you've been eating of the tree of knowledge all your life. And so you say, well, wait a minute. You're telling me to set down all these wonderful benefits and fruits and everything. No, I'm telling you to seek the kingdom of God, which has better fruit, healthier fruit more nourishing fruit. As a matter of fact, the nourishing fruit is so nourishing, it may bring you everlasting life. Whatever that means. <laughs> I have an article up on that. You can look that up too. And so, going back to uh, Exodus 20. Uh, and thou shalt not steal, I said that, bear false witness, not covet thy neighbor's goods. And the people saw the thundering and the lightning and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. They backed off. They were scared. Uh, and And there's a reason why. But there's actually more reasons why than you can imagine. But we won't get into that. Basically, you get close to the light and you're going to get afraid. And I've seen this with people who try to war against the Holy Spirit. That they get afraid. They they start looking for an excuse to exit stage left. And if they can't exit, they bow down to that Holy Spirit. They submit to it. Like I say, you don't cast demons out with hate. Or with swords. Or with guns. Not that you can have swords. I love swords. I love guns. I love... Because they're amazing tools. My son is a knife sharpener. If you need your knife sharpened, <laughs> you can come by. He's really... It's art, more art than science, but he knows the science and the art. So he can make your knife sharp. I'm afraid to show him my knife. It's so dull now. I've, I use my knives for almost everything. I almost always have two or three knives on me. Mostly in those Leatherman tools. Because I'm a tool guy. I, I work with my hands. But you don't defeat evil with any tool. But with the love of God. That's how you defeat it. And you need to create a channel in your heart for that love. 
which is why it's not right that you be alone, that you, you need to gather together to build your capacity for love for others. And the way you do that is to forgive others. And the way you test whether or not you forgave others is you give to others. Because it's really hard to give to people that you haven't forgiven. It's, it's really hard to even admit that you hated somebody, that you were angry with somebody. And that, because whenever you do that, you're usurping God. You're, you're judging that person instead of leaving judgment to God. And all I can tell you stories about that. God's been beating me over the head with that for a long time. Gently. God and I, we have an agreement. He usually beats me gently. <laughs> a loving God. He taught me how to discipline my own children with the same tactic. That you, you don't actually have to hit them. <laughs> you just have to notify them. <laughs> and when I first started out, I didn't know how all this works. But over the years, I've told these stories. And every one of these stories, there's a message. But the message, the ultimate message has to come from in your own heart. You have to identify with the message, not the messenger. And so... 19, and they said to Moses, speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Oh, that is a statement of pride. You want God to speak to you in your heart and your mind. But in order to do that, in order to let God speak to your heart and your mind, you do have to die. You, the arrogant you, has to die. The unforgiving you has to die. The unsacrificing for others has to die. The willful you has to die in order for you to hear God. The arrogant you has to die before you can hear God. So, you get the message. Verse 20. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not. Now, how many times does God say, fear not, in the Bible? I'll have to make that a live link. I say it here so that I will remind myself because we have articles on fear not. Because <laughs> it's over and over again. Fear not. You know, and, and they say it in a couple of different ways, but the basic idea, fear not. Because when you're afraid, that shows you don't really have faith in God. When the Israelites were afraid, Moses says, oh no, don't go out and fight. Just come in. God will fight for you. Just come in. They could have done that for generation after generation all across, uh, you know, the, the land of Israel and the promised land and all that stuff. And the reality is they did do that. Most people don't realize it, that most of the promised land was not taken by violence. Even Jericho, they didn't really have to take it by violence. Jericho killed itself because it would not listen to the Lord or the ways of the Lord. They they rejected the ways of the Lord. Just like the people who rejected Noah said, oh, we don't need your message, Noah. You know, they were all woke in those days. They all knew they had the answer. They didn't have to listen to anybody else. And so they perished because they thought that they knew it all already. So they couldn't take any wise counsel from anybody. As a matter of fact, they hated people with wise counsel. That's why they hated Christ. 
They wanted to kill Christ. They wanted to shut him up. They didn't want to hear the truth. Because they didn't love the light. They loved the darkness. There's a lot of people who think they're born again. They don't love the light. They won't like what you're hearing me say. But just go read the chapter that talks about born again and read a little bit farther than most preachers will take you. And ask yourself, do you really love the light? Or do you love the good feeling, the pride, the emotion? I'm born again. When were you born again? (laughs) That's pride. That's pride. If you're born of the Spirit, you don't need to boast it. It's just, it already exists. You, the last thing you'd want to do is boast of it. You, you wouldn't claim that somehow you were better because you were born of the Spirit. Because you're not good at all. None are good but God. The Spirit is good, but you're not good. So anyway, fear not, for God is come to prove you and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. So this is kind of stimulating something, but there was actually all kinds of things going on here. Some of them we will get to because there are other texts in the Bible that talk about uh, the principles that are here. And you don't need to know all the intellectual reality of this stuff. You just need to know the light. And of course in verse 21 it says, And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, different than Jacob, the sons of Jacob, the children of Israel, ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Heaven is this other realm. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. Gods of silver, gods of gold. There's actually double meaning in that. He's saying gods of silver, that's one thing. Gods of gold, that's another. We'd have to look at those individual words of gold and silver, realizing that these are metaphors to understand the depth of that. But basically, we're going to see that gods of gold coming up because all the city-states had statues of gold. Not all the city-states. Many of the city-states had statues of gold. The statues of gold in all these cities and city-states were also called in the Greek the reserve fund. And I have an article already up on that, so I'll put a link in there to that. But he goes on in verse 24, An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon by burnt offerings and peace offerings. I need to write an article on peace offerings. I'm reminding myself here if I get the time. There's so many things. Thy sheep and thy oxen in all places where I record my name I will make come unto thee and I will bless thee. So there's an actual blessing that can come to you that because of frequency. Somebody was talking about, what was it, F sharp? Is that it? That you could play a certain sound if you had a flute. And of course, many shepherds used to have flute. Play a certain sound and it would put the animals at ease. 
and you can actually talk to animals and put them at ease. And you can actually talk to animals, if you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you can talk to animals and they will actually do what you say. Uh, now, I'm not saying I have that power. I'm saying that God has that power and it can work through you and I've seen it work. But I don't have any power. God has all the power. But occasionally God will allow that power to move through people. But uh, I always, you know, people say, some Jehovah Witnesses came and they had read in their watchtower that, you know, sheep like to be sheared and that all you have to do is place your hand on them and they will just lay there and you can shear them. And that's what they read in their watchtower. At least that's how they read it. I don't know if that's a direct quote. And so they were asking me, they wanted to come by and see us shear sheep. And I said, so they had heard this, that all you had to do is place your hand on them. And I kind of looked at them and I said, well, sort of. Some of them you have to place your hand a little harder than others. <laughs> because actually when you shear sheep, and I've, I do it so much by second nature now, you do place hand and feet and knees in different places. You don't squash the sheep or anything like that. But you'll put your foot in a certain place and the sheep will be more docile most of the time. They don't all know the drill, or maybe I'm not as good at it as I should be. But they, there is a certain nature in the sheep that have come down to us through age. We have range sheep, so we have sheep that are more like the sheep that David probably had. And there's, a, there's lessons to be understood, patterns that we see in sheep that we don't necessarily see in goats or other patterns in goats, other patterns in cattle. And... Uh, those people that have worked with us here, we, we show them what they're doing, how they're standing in the field, how they put their head, how they look. They know exactly where you are. They know exactly where all kinds of things are. But they look so nonchalant. The cattle do. Sheep don't look nonchalant usually. Actually, they can. But there's patterns built into nature. Those patterns that are in nature that we see in nature are actually exemplifying, like the metaphors that I've been talking about, they're exemplifying the patterns in creation. They go all the way back to the origin of nature itself. And you'll see some of those patterns in certain ways in sheep, some of those patterns in certain ways in cattle, some of those patterns in certain way in deer, some of those patterns in certain way in canine. But a wolf is not the same as a border collie. There's different things that take place in these creatures. But there's patterns that are replicated over and over again. And there's reasons for those patterns. And if you're really sharp, I suppose you could rationalize to them. But if you're really attuned to Yahweh, the creator, the creative force, the unmoved mover, if you're letting them in your heart and in your mind, you will just know those patterns. And they will shine out of you into other creatures. And some creatures will hate you because <laughs> they hate God. And some creatures will love you because they love God. But you won't need their love. You will only need them so that you can provide services to them. And the service that you provide to them will hopefully draw them closer to the God of life. Because you can't give life. 
But you can help people find the way to life, which is the way to the tree of life, which is the way to the Holy Spirit. So we've used a lot of metaphysical terms, but we've also shown you how this fits into real life. And that's why you create altars of earth, which are altars of men, which are altars of congregations, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings. That's the things that you give up entirely on your altars of earth. And the the peace offerings, which you give up, and we can talk about that peace offerings in another time. Uh, thy sheep, thine oxen, in all places where I record my name, my character, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. In those places, that's where you actually do a burnt offering according to the nature of God. Where you're actually doing it because you care about the life of your neighbor as much as you care about your own life. Then God will bring you life more abundant. Jesus says this. Lay down your life. Give your burnt offering out of love. And God will bless you. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou... Lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Why is that? Because you're making regulations. The stones are living stones. The hewn stones are regulated stones. You're making rules. And it turns your burnt offering that it's not really burnt offering. I'll give you a perfect example. As many Protestant churches, they start a church. They get on the board of directors. They hire a minister. They give money to the minister or to the church, and then they run around the table, that the altar, and then they regulate the minister so that he knows he has to give this way and that way and according to this rule and according to that rule. It's not really a burnt offering anymore. They gave it to themselves to decide for themselves what they want done with it. That's thwarting the whole spirit of the gospel of the kingdom. You have to give it up entirely. But you you don't give your ministers the power to force your offerings. Every week, every day, your offering is a free will offering. And you have control that way. You give to your minister a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks. He gets to decide what to do with it. If you don't like what he's doing with it, don't give to him again. If other people like what he's doing, they can give to him. What we're doing, most of the time, I mean, we do have some people going out and taking care of the elderly. Mostly the elderly that are not in congregations. They're just round about us in our community. Hours were spent today taking care of the elderly. And, uh, you know, thousands of hours a year probably are taking care of the elderly over the years. That's what we do. But uh, most of the people in the network we don't need to take care of. Hopefully their children will. And we have done some things. Negotiating medical bills for people. We reduced medical bills by thousands of dollars over the years for people because they were a part of the network. But it's it's too much for Moses. It's too much for me. You have to sit down. And organize yourselves with the same spirit of God. With the same name of God written in your heart and in your mind. 
not taking his name in vain, not saying that you're a church, that you're saved, that you're born again, and still not caring for one another, not taking care of one another, not providing for the widows and orphans of your society entirely through faith, hope, and charity. So anyway, your ministers are not you, and you cannot regulate your ministers. I actually had somebody, we were just talking about them today, and it was years ago, but it's come across my desk in the last uh, few days, that he could not see something I was choosing to do in the network, you know, within the parameters that I saw fit. And I gave explanations why this fit. And uh, he couldn't see it. He's kind of a purist. Being separate was extremely important. It's not seek the kingdom of God and being separate. It's seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's that's the dictate. So it's not about being separate, although you will be separate, but you'll probably be separate like the Israelites were. They'll cast you out because you're full of light and they don't love the light, so they don't want to have anything to do with you. I could give you story after story, everything from police to magistrates where... They have no power against the light because they live in darkness. But anyway, you can't hew the stones. You can't regulate the stones. You still have to sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands and do your best to care about others as much as you care about yourself. To take care of others as much as you would want to be taken care of by yourself. If you go off on your own, be alone, be this loner, you're separate, all right, but you're separate from the kingdom. Repent. Think differently. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, try to regulate your ministers, thou hast polluted not only your ministers, but your gift upon those altars of stone. But anyway, verse 26. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Now, this actually came up. that You're supposed to make the breaches for your ministers so that his nakedness will not be revealed if he does go up by steps. <laughs> what does it mean to go up by steps? But this going up by steps means a hierarchy. And there is a hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about it. He says there's the greatest amongst you. How do you know who is the greatest amongst you? The highest in the hierarchy. Or how would you find him? He would be the greatest servant. He'd be down there washing your feet. Of all the scum you've picked up. Walking through false religion. <laughs> We've got to wash that scum off your feet. So that's where the highest minister is. The last thing he wants to do in the hierarchy of Christ is exercise authority over you. To rule over you. He is trying to get the God of heaven, the God of creation, to rule in your heart and in your mind. But he, God in heaven can't get in there if you keep clinging to the darkness and don't want to see the truth and provide for it. The truth is, you have to care about others as much as you care about yourself. And there is no better way to do that than to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. 
until we have 5,000 and then 50,000 and then 500,000, at least till we get 144,000 who know the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. So, yeah, going up by steps is a hierarchy, but not a hierarchy of authority because we are naked. We have no authority. That's what nakedness means. And so we don't want to be discovered trying to exercise authority. Is it MacArthur? Is that his name? That was a minister. But the reality is he says a lot of things that are very true, very close. But I don't see the essence of when Jesus says, you have seen the... Governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other but call themselves benefactors but exercise that authority. You are not to be that way. Talking to Christians and certainly talking to the ministers. But I have to ask, is he a part of a system that exercises authority one over the other and does he get his benefits from those men who exercise authority over his neighbor? You can't do that. Certainly as a minister of Christ, you can't be doing that. You can't be justifying that. And you certainly don't want to lead people to depend upon such systems of force and covetous practices. Because you know it's going to lead them into bondage. You know it's going to make them merchandise. You know it's going to curse their children with... Trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. And even if you don't know that that's what will happen, you can now look at the news and know that has happened. So, yeah, you have to understand the metaphors. And so anyway, we got all the way to Exodus 20. (laughs) And my voice is going rapidly. And uh, I've got other things to do because we have a storm coming in. So I will go tend to my other flocks. And I will say to you, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless, and join us on the network at preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org. Until next week or next time, you can also check out our, our YouTube channel at His Holy Church. I think it's actually at His Holy Church. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.